Hi, it's Dan. And yes, a new season of the industry is coming in 2023. But I wanted to re-release this episode now because we have an update to it. This is the story of the seemingly never-ending journey that filmmaker Patrick Reed Johnson has been on to get his autobiographical film 52577 finished and released. When I spoke to Patrick in 2019, he was very confident that it would be out by 2020. Then the pandemic happened and things changed. However, now in 2022, the movie is finally out. 52577 had a small theatrical release in September and is currently streaming on Showtime. So now here's the original episode and I'll be back for a follow up with Patrick right after. Let me throw a different question at you uh, regarding sure, this particular sure. film. You started this movie, you started shooting it in 2004, so you must have been putting it together right. before then. That's right. I was writing it in 1999 is when I started writing it. Wow. Okay, so now just out of curiosity here, say you're one of your investors and right. I've given you my money in 2004 and now it's 2011. Right. I'm looking at my wrist and tapping my watch and I'm standing in front of right. you. How do you, right. how do you go ahead and, I don't know, I guess essentially buy more time? You know, how do you manage that aspect of it? Number one, I have really wonderful investors. I mean, they're, they're people who believe in the project. This is Patrick Reed Johnson being interviewed in 2011 by, well, by me. Patrick is one of those guys who is destined to be in the industry. He's done pretty much everything you can do in the industry. He's made models, visual effects, he was a second unit director, done some writing, and yes, he's directed some features as well. Okay, so the big question is, when is this movie coming out? Well, isn't that the question? Probably just a few months after it's finished. And the movie I keep charmingly asking Patrick about is a personal one. It's Patrick's own story about growing up in small-town Illinois in the 1970s and somehow ending up in Hollywood. It's a coming-of-age story of a nerdy, sci-fi-loving kid. And at the time of this 2011 interview, this film of his had not been finished, even though filming had initially wrapped in 2004. This leads to a fairly obvious question. How long before the movie is finished? And, and, and what is holding up the finishing of the film? Uh, well, it's, it's a long story, as you can imagine. And he's right. It is a long story. But what Patrick doesn't know in 2011 is just how long of a story it's going to be. In fact, it's going to be so long that we might not have an ending to it just yet. My name is Dan Delgado, and in this episode, we're taking a look at the very long road taken to get one film finished in the story we're calling a not-so-new hope. Welcome to the industry. Patrick Reed Johnson does not want me to spoil his movie 52577. After all, he's been working on it now for years, and the last thing he wants is some podcaster giving everything away. The tricky part about this is that the movie's story is also Patrick's story, which is the story I'm trying to tell. So in my conversation with him, he would frequently say things like, um, And I won't tell you what happened. I will only tell you that it, it changed my DNA. And? And, um, and again, I don't want to get too much away about what happened. The thing is, Patrick's own story is really great, and it's hard for him not to tell it. So eventually he does. And, there, and I'm giving away a little more than I should, but what the hell. 
Working in the industry is something that Patrick Reed Johnson wanted to do from a ridiculously early age. I knew I wanted to make movies at the tender age of six years old. The day I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey, its first week of release um, with my parents. And by the end of it, I just said, I'm doing that. Whatever, however they did that, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. They said, well, you know, graduate kindergarten. We'll, you know, we'll see how it goes. But that was it. Everything I did from the day after I got out of that theater was devoted to trying to do that. It didn't matter that he lived in small town Illinois, which in the 1970s must have seemed like it was a million miles away from Hollywood. He was going to make movies no matter what. I was the only geek in town. And my way of surviving that was to just create my own little sort of movie studio on my property. And, you know, when my dad left, I, I, I took over the garage because we didn't have to keep his you know, beautiful Corvette Stingray perfectly dust-free and clean at all times. And once he was gone, the basement where he had his art studio became my studio. And the, the swimming pool, well, <laughs> that became my insert tank. And with my mom busy raising three other kids younger than me, she was pretty much, look, if you're occupied and staying out of trouble, I don't care what you do. Take over as much as you want. And movies create families. So Patrick, the movie-loving kid who needed his own tribe, found his by making movies in his backyard. Though using your tribe to be in the backyard version of Jaws had its own challenges. One of the things was my friends would mostly get bored after a day or two of working on any project because they, they didn't think it was serious in the first place. You know, they were just there because something, something crazy was going to happen. Some, I was going to ask him to wear some weird thing or some mask or have him fall out of a tree into a mattress or, you know, have blood bags in the pool. or They get to be killed in wonderful ways every week, right? But after that, the actual business of making an actual film with coverage and remembering lines and stuff, they couldn't have cared less. So that was probably one of the reasons I had to keep starting new projects was to get them to go, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> But it was a way of, of having a group of people care about something I cared about every time we started a new project. You know, it was a way of developing a, a set of friends that you could hang out with. And it was only a matter of time before Patrick fulfilled his destiny and left Wadsworth, Illinois for the bright lights of Hollywood. I knew I had to leave. I just was trying to figure out any way possible to make that not so. And I think in my way, I believed that I would either eventually make something good enough that people would say, wow, he's really good at this. Let's give him money and let it, and he could keep making it right there in Wadsworth, Illinois, population 750, no problem. Really believing that, except, of course, as I got older and, as, and then once I was exposed to Hollywood for the first time, which is part of the movie, um, and seeing what was really both possible, expected, and at stake, I, know, I knew immediately that there was no way that that was going to happen and that I had to either go there, give up everything that I built back in Wadsworth, Illinois, and grow up, or find some insane way of changing Wadsworth enough that I wouldn't mind staying there the rest of my life. And that's where the movie came in. Fast forward to the 1990s. By this point, Patrick had been in the industry for years, making models, doing effects, writing, and even directing. He made his directorial debut with Spaced Invaders in 1990, a low-budget comedy about some short, goofy aliens who come to Earth on Halloween, and everyone just thinks they're little kids in costumes. From Touchstone Pictures, they were just out cruising the galaxy yeah! till they ran out of gas oh, man. and ran into the locals. Hey, can we borrow a gallon? Now they're looking for help. Can we borrow a gallon? Yeah, what a dweeb. Looking for action. Hey, Dirk. Ooh, hey, babe, loosen up. And getting into a lot of trouble. Hey, you're drinking bleach. Mm -hmm. 
dudes, Space Invaders. You dudes like heavy metal? Yes, not. Fred and PG starts Friday, April 27th at a theater near you. Disney put it in 1,500 theaters, and it made probably $15 million at the box office, which which doesn't seem like a lot, except it only cost two. So at the time, and then went on to be huge in video uh, for Disney. And Disney even put it in their stockholders' report saying, people should make more movies for this kind of money that are this good so that we can make this kind of money on movies this small. His follow-up was the John Hughes production, Baby's Day Out a high-concept comedy about a baby wandering around the big city while being chased by three bumbling crooks. Meet Baby Bink. <laughs> He's a genuine joy. You got a nasty little surprise for me? <laughs> Adorable summer fun. Don't you get into any mischief, well, that dad's going. <laughs> Hilarious. Pure baby. Where would you go? <laughs> Kids will love it. There he is! From John Hughes. You had quite an adventure today. Baby's Day Out. Directed by Patrick Reed Johnson. Rated PG. Starts Friday at theaters everywhere. It was a big-budget summer release that didn't really catch on. He also wrote Dragonheart, a movie that he was scheduled to direct, but ended up getting pushed out of the project. And this brings us to the late 1990s, where he set up at Universal and developing different projects. And he's also become friends with Gary Kurtz, a producer who is likely best known for producing Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, and American Graffiti. Patrick and Gary begin tossing around ideas for movies. And then one day, Patrick decides to share something personal with Gary. He's involved in a bunch of these projects with me, and we're having the time of our lives, and I'm getting to work with, you know, one of my heroes. And, uh, and one day, I say, just offhand, I say, you know, I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I, was, I saw Star Wars long before it came out. And he goes, really? I, wait, 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 test screening or something? And I said, no, no, no. Long before you probably even did test screenings, or, or at least any that I ever knew of or anything else. And, and, and he goes, well, when did you see it? And I gave him the date. And he said, wait a minute. And then he started thinking and he did the mental math. And he goes, if you saw Star Wars on that day, you were the first human being that didn't either work on it or have something to do with marketing it or have some, you know, you, the first non-professional that would be involved with seeing it to have ever seen and he goes you're fan one and i said okay (laughs) yeah that's right fan one patrick reed johnson is the first person to have seen star wars pretty cool and the story of how he came to see it is one of those things he doesn't want me to tell you so i won't but that story is the one movie idea that gary really dug Without knowing I was pitching a movie, I pitched him the movie that is 52577. And he goes, well, why aren't we developing that? That's the movie. That's what you have to write. Go write that. So I did. You know, and we finally, finally took it a long time. I mean, I started writing it in 1999. It makes sense. Seeing Star Wars changed Patrick's life. And the title of his movie, 52577, in case you don't know, is the day Star Wars was released. Patrick gets down to business writing in 1999 and has the movie in production by 2004. And he's got a nice cast, too. John Francis Daly, who you might know from Freaks and Geeks, is playing the movie version of Patrick. And the supporting cast has familiar faces like Austin Pendleton, Colleen Camp, and Neil Flynn. One thing to keep in mind is that this is very much an independent production. Even though when it was first conceived, Patrick is set up at Universal. And while he could have had this movie done with a studio and a good budget, that would have meant story compromises. 
And being that this is Patrick's own story, that just wasn't going to happen. We actually brought it to some major studios, a couple of which were happy to make it, but a certain incredibly high-powered executive at Disney at the time said, I'll make this movie tomorrow. I said, but he goes, I know you, Patrick, and, and I need to tell you something. You're not going to want to make the version of this that I'm going to greenlight, because if I greenlight this, it's going to have to be like road trip for movie makers. It's going to have to be lots of sex, drugs. I don't have any problem showing any of that in my films at all. I would be happy to. The problem was he, he was saying, I don't mean you're showing it. You're, you're going to have to make basically a comedy out of what is in what is really an intense drama with lots of fun. The production wraps in 2004, but the movie's not finished. There's more footage needed, so a year later they do some more shooting. And after looking at everything, they realize they're still not done. In 2006, there's more shooting. Post-production is where things really grind to a slow crawl. Money is tight, and those special effects and music rights aren't going to pay for themselves. A couple of more years go by and it's still not finished. Then, there's the period in which the William Morris Agency had creative ownership of the movie. They decided changes needed to be made. That title, 52577, too clunky, change it! So they shortened it to 77. See, it's much cleaner that way. They also wanted to cut some scenes out as well. None of this went over well with Patrick. But eventually, he's back in control of his movie and the title gets restored. And even though the movie gets screened at festivals periodically and gets an overwhelmingly positive reaction each time, it's still not finished. And remember in 2013, when people were going Kickstarter crazy? When Veronica Mars fans gave the show's creator $5.7 million to make a movie that would end up grossing $3.4 million? When filmmakers like Spike Lee and Paul Schrader were kickstarting movies and it seemed like anything was possible? Patrick was still in need of funding to get the movie done. So he gets an idea. So it started out as a as a half, like a test screening tour meets publicity stunt meets attempt to create a kind of sales pitch, long form video for a, like a Kickstarter campaign to get the damn movie finished. That's right, a tour and a Kickstarter. By this time in 2013, movie geeks are well aware of 52577. It's almost like this mythical movie that they'd heard about for almost nine years now. The idea was to tour the country, show the unfinished version in a bunch of towns, create a word of mouth, a buzz in the industry, and maybe get the funding the movie needs. So they get the Pinto used in the movie and an old RV. And uh, we filled it with editing machines and Macintoshes and put GoPro cameras all over it, and we had two chase vehicles and GoPro cameras on them. And we had the Pinto with two, two or three GoPro cameras on it. And off we went. We took off from, literally from Waukegan, Illinois, in front of the Genesee Theater. Uh, that was where it all began. And we crossed the country. The tour gets going, full of hope and passion and love. Heading to places like a comic book store in, in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, right? And then a comic book store in Colorado somewhere. Uh, I can't even remember what town it was. And then on to Devil's Tower and to the KOA campground that served originally as the base of operations in Close Encounters, where we showed the movie on a giant hand-strung screen that we built out on the back deck of this campground, um, you know, uh, convenience store deck that, that was situated so you, the Devil's Tower was right there, right behind the screen. And everything is going great for a while. And then things are not so great. 
that would keep raising money on the goodwill of people that thought, hey, I like this movie, I like what you guys are up to. And so we kept dropping these videos like, hey, if you can just help us, we can go to the next town, we can go to the next town. And we started losing people to, att to attrition. I mean, people got tired, they got cranky, they had to go on with their lives. And it slowly started getting a tinier and tinier group. And what started out as a feel-good project with good intentions has devolved into something else. This was supposed to be a 30-day trip, but because we would run out of gas, we'd run out of money, we'd run out of funding, sometimes we'd be stuck for days. At one point, we were at a campground in, I think, Nebraska, or no, Kansas. Middle of nothing Kansas. Beautiful campground. But we couldn't move. We literally couldn't get out of there because we'd run out of money. Patrick's 30-day trip ended up taking 143 days. In that time, he would travel to 14 states, log 7,000 miles, and one foreign country, Canada. While it certainly didn't go the way it was intended, there were some highlights. The final stop in Montreal, for example, featured two sold-out screenings at Fantasia Fest where fans ate the movie up. When it was all said and done, though, the tour didn't raise the funds or generate the buzz it was meant to. Despite all the stops and successful receptions at screenings held across the United States, 525.77 remained unfinished. And now, several years after the tour is over, it's still unfinished. According to Patrick, the cast remained supportive. John Francis Daly, the lead of the movie, has gone on to be a successful screenwriter and director. He co-wrote Spider-Man Homecoming and directed Game Night, and he still gets a call from Patrick from time to time. The funny thing was is that they all were involved with each new iteration because we had to sometimes shoot new material with them. John Francis Daly, bless his heart, has not only been there back in the day, but even as recently as, oh God, just a, like a week or two before we put together the mix for the 2017 release, there we lost uh, a certain song and, and so we needed to redo some lines to cover for it in this car sequence and he pulled out his microphone at home and recorded the lines and sent them to me as files and no problem. I mean, in the middle of directing his next project, whatever it was, and uh, you know, he's always been there, all of them. So the question remains, what is the holdup here? What's left, if anything, to do? Well, there are a few things actually. There is color timing, that sort of thing. Okay, that's one thing. There needs to be a final sound mix. There's a really good temp mix, but it needs to be final. All right, that's two. The main thing right now is we're also paying for all the music. So we've got a little tiny bit of chunk of money we just got to bring to the party in the next month or so. That's three, and that's always the worst because music rights always cost. But other than that, the movie's finished. Depending on how you look at it, it does seem that Patrick is close to the finish line. And the movie does still show up at festivals in whatever the most recent form of it is. There was even a one-day nationwide release on 5-25-2017, the 40th anniversary of Star Wars. Though Patrick calls that a stunt release. In the years since he started, a lot has changed for Patrick. When he's not working on 5-25-77 or a slew of other projects he has going, he's now a professor at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. He had his students in mind when I asked him what is probably an obvious question that he's heard a few times, I'm going to guess. In your journey with this movie, right, this journey yeah. that's been going on for years that seems to be to the end, was there a point where you thought, this is not going to get finished? 
I should just move on to something else. I, I need to put no. this away. And no, focus on something no, else. nope. I mean, <laughs> another thing I tell my students, and it's a, it's a, it's just a, a truth that they can choose to believe or not. The most the most absolute certain way to not make it in Hollywood is to give up. And a lot of these young people will say, so how long do I have to wait? Like when I graduate before I get a job as director, he said, longer than you're going to be able to if you're asking that question. Because it, first of all, unanswerable, other than you have to wait until you get a job as a director. That's what you have to wait for. And, and they don't want to hear that. They want to say, oh, come on. I mean, really, like a year, is it two years? And, and the answer is, it, it, it is that's not answerable. And if you need that answer, it's likely you'll give up possibly the day before you would have gotten your shot. There's no quitting. The people I know who've made it at all in Hollywood, or and I, when I use the term Hollywood now, I mean the world of filmmaking. The only ones I know who ever made it were ones who simply said, I, I'm just going to do it. I mean, I'm doing this. It's hard not to root for Patrick. He still talks about 52577 with a passion, and the guy is just indefatigable. And, believe it or not, he's closer than ever to being finished. Really. He's hoping to have it out in theaters and streaming by December of 2019, around the same time as the next Star Wars movie, Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker, is released. This means at some point, I'll have to edit this podcast with an update. But I'm okay with that. As long as it's good news. And the time for that update is right now. That was the episode as it was published in 2019. Now, here's my recent chat with Patrick to see what he's been doing these last couple of years and what he'll be doing now that his movie is finally released. Oh, and one more thing. On the day that I spoke to Patrick, he was sitting in a noisy area. I've done my best to minimize that noise, but you will definitely still hear it. Since 2019, and, and when I spoke to you, you were looking to have it the film out in 2020. So what has happened in the last three years? I mean, other than the obvious thing that happened in the last three years. Well, the, the interesting part was that in, in, you know, 2019, we, we picked up, you know, distribution from MVD who came in and, and were the first people to finally say, yeah, we'll pay for the music. The thing that kept this movie out of theaters for over a decade was not that nobody wanted it. We had all kinds of people that wanted it, but nobody was willing to pay for the soundtrack of, you know, 20 plus really cool 70s songs that we'd gotten great deals for, thanks to Alan Parsons and my contacts and everybody else. We'd gotten what should have been $2 million worth of music for like $200,000 because the artists liked it. Alan knew people, I knew people. But nobody was willing to pay for the music. They were saying, you know what, just get some sound-alike music or put some score in there. We're not going to pay $200,000 for a bunch of pop songs. And I was like, well, then you're not getting the movie. But MVD finally stepped in. The problem was they stepped in right at the beginning of the, you know, the plague. Sure. <laughs> and all of a sudden, theatrical distribution was out the window. There was no nothing to be done. And, and then suddenly that had occurred to the gang, they sort of said, well, why don't we delay a year, right? Mm -hmm. Because why would you release on the, you know, the 44th anniversary of Star Wars when you could release on the 45th, right? <laughs> this is all true. <laughs> and, it, and they, you know, and they, and they're, what they said was like, well, obviously Lucasfilm's going to be, you know, 
doing a lot more celebration on the 45th than they are on the 44th, you know, so let's wait a year. And I was like, okay, all right. Well, but that gave me another year to mess around with, you know, final, you know, visual effects and different things. Um, You know, you know, and so everything that happened was, was over the last, since you and I last talked was, it was basically about positioning it properly for a good distribution. You know, it wasn't about any problems with the film or anything else we had to get done necessarily. It did give me more time, which I was grateful for. But it was really mostly about where does this fit in well? And nobody knew at the time. Nobody knew about the Fablemans. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Stephen kept it a total secret. I've seen some, you know, funny comments on different websites with people saying, look at this guy kind of sneaking, sneak in with a movie he just made to hit, you know, to try to, and I'm like, wait a minute. I not only can't wait to see my hero's movie, The Fablemans, but first I have to jump in the time machine I just built and go back 18 years to start shooting my movie. (laughs) It's like, uh, and I, my other quote is, if you see just one disaffected cinema geek youth trying to make it in his hometown as a young boy movie this year, it should probably be The Fablemans. But if you see two... <laughs> yeah, forget you, Armageddon time. What are you doing here anyway? No one invited you to this party. Oh, so... <laughs> That's good. Thank you, thank you. So... If I may ask, how important was it to you to have a theatrical release? You know, I'm so old school because I'm an old dude. And, you know, I grew up with, you know, when I like, you know, just a couple of days ago was the 45th anniversary of the release of Close Encounters in theaters. And Close Encounters is my favorite film of all time. I know that doesn't seem it seems Wait, I thought Star Wars was your favorite film, or, or 2001. Now, Close Encounters is my favorite film of all time. And I saw it 34 times in its first 30 days of release in the theater. That meant there were several days where I went twice. And it, it remains my favorite film of all time. And whenever it shows, my kids, like, it's shown sometimes at, like, Thanksgiving and stuff. And if, if it's Thanksgiving and it's on the TV somewhere and I'm watching it, they know that they'll find me on the couch weeping. <laughs> and it's, it, it, it's, it, to me, it, it was a transformative piece of work, and I still, in my opinion, and Stephen, of course, has every right to disagree with me because he's Stephen, I think it's the deepest look into him until The Fablemans. I think it's the most complete Stephen movie in terms of being about his worldview yeah. that there is. I mean, E.T. is right in there as well, obviously, but but I think Close Encounters, I love E.T. I love it with every fiber of my being. I think Close Encounters is a better movie overall, you know, but that's just, that's me. But it was, it, it hit me at the, at the perfect time. You know, I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. I had actually met Steven on the set of Close Encounters at, at Teacher General. I worked on the mothership for a day, you know, gluing, model parts onto the spaceship it just because they let me because I was this goofy kid. Until you sent me the the um, American Cinematographer article, which I read, I did not know that you actually got to use the actual props in 525.77. So tell me about that, what that must have been like to have those props, which clearly shaped your entire life. 
I mean, you have to understand that, you know, not not too many years after arriving in L.A., I started working for Douglas Trumbull and did a lot of work with him, both as a fellow for screenplays with him, but also I did storyboards and, and miniatures, and I worked for him in various capacities, and we became collaborators and finally ended up developing a bunch of projects, including a sequel to Silent Running that we may yet do, or that I may do, even though Doug isn't with us anymore. And first of all, Doug said, you can have all my stuff. And he sent me this gigantic box full of all the original storyboards that were on the walls at, at Future General and photo blow-ups with, you know, grease pencil mark on it. And, and Richard Urisich sent me Matt Urisich's matte paintings, the actual glass matte paintings in a big shipping container. And then Greg Jean, you know, who left us just a couple of years, just a year ago, you know, who met me in the parking lot of the uh, TGI Fridays in Marina Del Rey and handed me two boxes. One had the actual Devil's Tower miniature that he had sculpted out of foam for Close Encounters. And the other had the little Close Encounters, you know, mothership study model he had built based on Ralph McQuarrie's drawings that sat on Stephen's desk at Future General. So when you see that little model on Stephen's desk at Future General, that's the actual model that sat on Stephen's desk. And I had to like buy plane seats, you know, to transport these things back. It was, it was amazing. I mean, it's just so cool. So as far as this release went, it was a very kind of under the radar release. Was yeah, for, for theatrical, it, it was yeah. just, I, we probably were in a hundred theaters, you know, across the country and Canada. Um, and, but, but there, there's a bunch more coming up in Europe and Asia and everything else. But, but it was really more because, it's not that it, we expected to make any money off a of theatrical. We didn't. You know, we're not. We don't. We don't have the advertising budget. We don't have the profile. But there were people out there we knew wanted to see it, and we wanted to have it in a theater because the theater experience is still obviously the best experience you can have, right? And this movie is, as you've seen, is very much made to be in a theatrical environment because of its aspect ratio changes and you know, the sound work and the scale of it, even though it's a small story about one little guy, it has, it has epic, um, not pretension, but epic ambition. And it wants to be on a big screen. Right. And, and, and we only shot it that way. And, and, and so we, I, you know, I was very happy and very, I felt very supported by MVD and that they, you know, supported a theatrical release and, and made that happen. We knew that the real, ultimate destination was DVD Blu-ray and then obviously it's on Showtime starting in December, December 15th. Okay. That, yeah. See, there you go. You've already taken care of another question I was going to ask you, so I, I appreciate that. So, now, have you heard from any of the cast members? So, I think some of them, maybe they're not acting so much or at all. So, like Steve Coulter, who's so good in the movie... Right. So great. He's great in that movie. So I just wondering he's if you've heard from any of these people. Well, he's not acting anymore. He's doing other things that he's very happy with and has a family and kids. And, and I think he's just happy that it's out there. And Emmy Chen is pursuing her music career and doing quite well. And she's just happy it's out there. Katie Jeep also has other professional things she's moved on to, who's amazing in this movie, obviously, as, as Robin. And then, you know, I talk to John Francis Daly every now and then, and he's obviously done well for himself, you know, it, 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 do, and, but he's very happy. He's, we, we actually discussed the idea of a possible 
either two sequels, The Empire Strikes Pat and Return of the Alumni, about about my time in Hollywood and then the t- and then what it took to make the movie, <laughs> uh, or a possible like limited series called The Monolith, where he and all the footage we have because we have like six hours of footage that's not in this movie that could be used as flashbacks where he's now what you know 38 and but we have him at 18 19 and can actually intercut that stuff so there could be a really interesting kind of boyhood tv series like mad men in hollywood for the 90s which would be really fun i know are are you sure you you're willing to you want to go down that road are are you are you maybe tempting the hand of fate write it I want to write it and walk away and let somebody else do it. I got other things to do. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that is my question. That is a question I have for you. Are you really done with it? You've lived with it now for 20 plus years. Are you really going to be okay with it? Yeah, no, not I'm, being in your life looming in the know, background. I just had this conversation with my friend Seth Gavin, who runs AV, or, or who created AV Squad, the big trailer cutting company in Los Angeles, who also did our poster, our new poster. And you know, it was one of those "What are you going to do next?" things, right? And and it's funny because I I am okay with moving on. I've got plenty of other projects to develop and do and, and work on. At the same time, you know. There are stories, the stories of what happened to this character, this kid that went off in his little Fort Pinto to Los Angeles in 1980, really, but 77, 80 in there, are so amazing. And you can name the real names. It's, you know, famous actors, famous directors, famous producers, famous studio executives. It's like entourage if entourage were true, right? And, and yet it has the geek component of a guy that's got one foot in model making and visual effects and the other in studio boardrooms and, you know, scripts that he's selling and trying to get movies made. And, you know, there's this really interesting dichotomy between that world and the world of the guys with the model parts, you know, Grigley's and Nernie's on spaceships and stuff. You know, I mean, I lived in both worlds for quite a long time. And I think there's something kind of fascinating about that. So I, I don't, I don't want to navel gaze and look at my life. Nobody's been waiting for the Patrick Reed Johnson story for decades. However, you could have a lot of fun with something like that. In the meantime, I've got lots of other projects that have been sort of waiting for me that I put on hold to do this movie all those years ago. And now, weirdly enough, people are still like, those are good projects. Let's go do those. So, Do you have something lined up that you're going to be doing next? I have some... I, I, I have some things that I shouldn't say too much about, one of which is a Star Wars thing, but I don't want to get into it too much. But it's a Star Wars story, and it's we'll see. We'll see what happens. Thank you for listening or re-listening to The Industry. This episode was presented by Movie Maker, the destination for movie fans and movie makers alike. Visit moviemaker.com. Thanks to Patrick Reed Johnson, And hey, best of luck on whatever comes next. If you'd like to get in touch, you can. Send me an email. It's dan at moviemaker.com. And on Twitter, the show is at TheIndustry13. And I'm at underscore Dan underscore Delgado. That's it for now for The Industry. See you in 2023.